4: If you see a bunch of swans swimming in a pond, you might admire the scene, but otherwise not think much of it. But if one of the swans were black, well, you'd stop and stare. A black swan, after all, is a phenomenally rare occurrence. And so the term black swan has come to refer to other events so outside the norm, well, they just can't be predicted. The once-in-a-hundred-year hurricane, the mathematical prodigy, but when they do happen, they change everything. It's Tale of the Distribution from Big Picture Science. Everybody has musical talent, at least a little bit. Sometimes you express it by singing in the shower.
1: It's Friday, Friday.
4: Or plinking a few strings on a guitar. Even playing the spoons. Well, I did say a little talent, whatever. I mean, the point is, there's a distribution of musical talent in the population. There are some people who can play the piano well, but there are some people who can play the piano a little better than they can, and then there are people who are better than those are, and then there are those above them and above them, and finally you get to the tail of the distribution, where piano playing reaches heights that are way, way up there in the breathless, rarefied stratosphere. These Ivory Key virtuosos
1: are not just a little better musically than the best. They are better than everyone else alive and most people who have ever been alive. Vladimir Horowitz, Myra Hess, Arthur Rubinstein. And there are exceptional talents not only in classical music, of course, but in jazz and hip hop, in literature, painting, sports. Every area has its rarer than rare talent whose abilities change everything. I'm Molly Bentley.
4: I'm Seth Shostak. Welcome to Big Picture Science, where we step back to get a wide-angle view on science and technology. And it's not just people who are members in this elite club of extraordinariness. Natural events are, too. Today it's raining. Okay, so, you know, it's just sort of an average rainstorm. I mean, it's, you know, it's going to mess up the, the shine on my car, but, you know, it's not going to do a whole lot. Every few years, you get a rainstorm where the winds are so strong that it knocks over some trees. That's, that's a little more serious. And, you know, maybe once a century or thereabouts, on average, you'll get a storm that's so intense, it can wipe out Galveston, Texas, or, or flood New Orleans. Those are the tail of the distribution events. They're important. They're not all disasters. The Large Hadron Collider, for example, smashes protons at the rate of 600 million collisions per second when it's turned on. But every now and then, one collision in 1,000 billion billion, it produces a new particle and occasionally, new physics. That's the tale of the distribution, too. Okay, this is radio, but we'd like you to think in pictures for a moment, so you can even grab a pen for this if you like. It's simple. Imagine a graph. You have your vertical axis on the left and the horizontal axis extending from the bottom of it. Now, draw the outline of a bell. The lip of the bell is flat along the graph on the left. The line arcs up in a big bell shape in the middle. It peaks, it comes down on the right-hand side in a mirror image of the left, and then it's flat again. Congratulations! You've drawn, on paper or maybe just in your mind, a bell-shaped distribution curve. And it represents the probability of what might happen, the distribution of IQ scores, for example, in your classroom, the weight of cattle in your herd, and so forth.
1: Now, we're interested in talking about exceptional events, so you think that we'd be focused on the highest point of your bell. But that point actually represents average performance. So, if your bell curve describes, say, the intensity of rainstorms, the ones at the peak are your most probable, everyday, run-of-the-mill showers.
4: Now, consider the lower right-hand side of the curve, where the lip of the bell nearly becomes flat. That narrow sliver of space between the bell and the horizontal axis, that's what's called the tail of the distribution. See, most action takes place somewhere in the middle of the curve. You know, you play tennis, for example. You're better than average, you can beat the neighbors, but your ranking is still in the fat part of the bell curve. But over there in the tail, well, that's where you'll find Roger Federer. And that's where weird stuff happens, phenomenal events. Some are marvelous, others are pretty horrible, but they're all game changers. But there's more. As we consider these fascinating tail of the distribution events, it's helpful to understand related phenomena called black swans.
1: The term was coined in 2001 by a risk analyst to describe rare events that have major impact but that are impossible to predict. They occur unexpectedly. The term black swan is taken from a Latin expression that, when it was eventually translated into English, was used to express an impossibility because black swans were thought not to exist. However...
5: Black swans do exist. They're a native to Australia and formerly New Zealand...
1: Don Balmer is an ornithologist at the British Trust for Ornithology. Okay, so black swan is a term that people use to describe not impossible, but rare events, unless you're living in Australia or Europe.
5: Black swans are really quite widespread in Australia, and it wouldn't be unusual to go to a pond or some brackish marshland and find a black swan.
1: They're striking birds, aren't they? They have these black, grey feathers and the bright red beaks. They're, They're gorgeous birds.
5: Black swans are quite deceptive, actually, because they look at first glance to be black in colour, with a deep red bill and red eyes. And yet, as soon as they open their wings, there's this flash of white, which is completely hidden when the wings are closed.
1: Now, here in the States, it would be very unusual to come across a black swan.
5: Absolutely. Um, As far as I'm aware, you don't have any black swans or they haven't been introduced yet.
4: OK, so in this country, at least, black swans don't seem to be hanging around much, if at all. And so they're a metaphor for events that are highly unusual, but also unpredictable, like when the birds themselves make a surprising flash of white from under their wings. So why is it that the rare tail
1: of the distribution events can have oversized impact on things? Geologist and paleontologist Donald Prothero has an answer, and as a scientist who considers deep geologic time... He can put into perspective events that are truly rare, those that we find unimaginable, and those that take us by utter surprise.
4: Don, you write about extreme natural events, catastrophes, and some of them change history. I mean, you've written about floods, blizzards, tsunamis. Let's consider a specific example: the 2004 Indian tsunami, one of the worst in history. Apparently, killed more than I don't know, 230,000 people. It's hard to believe yeah, that close to number. Quarter million. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, how rare is something like that, and were there extenuating circumstances, a confluence of factors?
0: Yeah, it was a very interesting combination of circumstances because the majority of tsunamis occur around the Pacific Rim because that is where all the places where we have subduction zones, where one plate slides beneath another, are very much focused. And where subduction occurs, there are giant earthquakes as one plate makes a big jump underneath another, And so nearly all the big tsunamis come from big earthquakes on the Pacific Rim. But there are a few subduction zones that face to the Indian Ocean, the Java Trench being one of them, one of the few places outside the Pacific that has those. And so that was why it occurred in a place that does not happen very often. And that was the combining effect of another factor, which is because tsunamis are rare in the Indian Ocean, nobody had any preparation or expectation or any uh, reason to get warnings out or anything like that. They had no early warning system like the Pacific Rim does. And so virtually everybody was caught by surprise. And that's what caused such a high loss of life.
4: So do tail of the distribution events generally represent a number of unlikely conditions sort of coming together like that, uh, the Galveston hurricane of 1900, whatever, that kind of thing? Or, or can they just happen? I'm thinking here of a volcanic eruption. It's, it's not that right. there's a confluence of circumstances. It's just a rare event.
0: Right. Rare events are only rare on our human timescales. I mean, to a geologist, any active volcano sooner or later in millions of years is probably going to have an eruption, and we have a much longer time frame to view it. Likewise, any area is going to be hit by a tsunami sooner or later, you know, if you look over millions of years on the Pacific Rim. And so for us, you know, that's just a very different thing. We have a distribution that has a very much larger timescale than humans do.
4: When you talk about unlikely events, many people will think in terms of say, human abilities, you know, Einstein, da Vinci, Marie Curie, or, you know, musical talents. I mean, the the exceptional people in any field. And they're clearly at the tail of a distribution of talents in in the right. population, right? But on the other hand, those people have an inordinate amount of influence. They really do change things. One Mozart is worth a lot of you know, people who've just taken a couple of piano lessons. Right, so, right. so the tale of the distribution maybe there's not a lot of action there, but it's but it's important action.
0: right. Now, that has been a recurring theme for a number of years now in the sciences, especially in geology, is the importance of rare events. You know, thanks to our uh, roots and Charles Lyell over a century and a half ago, been so convinced by a gradualist perspective that everyday stuff is what makes the world go around. But in the recent uh, decades, a number of things have gotten us to realize that big events have disproportionate effects. And often cases, big events are the only events that really matter. So on a short-term scale, for example, you can watch the desert day in and day out and see the wind blowing and and a few things. But it's one or two flash floods in a couple of centuries that do almost all the erosion of a desert like we just had last month in the Colorado Plateau around St. George where the gigantic flooding happened in Las Vegas and all the rest. For a barrier island like on the coast of North Carolina, people live there for years and never worry about hurricanes. But if you dig a trench down into the barrier island sands, you'll find one hurricane deposit after another, because the only events that really count as far as actually modifying that island are the infrequent hurricanes, maybe once or twice a century. But when they come, the entire island vanishes and then regrows after the hurricane is gone. And so that tells you how much more important, to say, a hurricane is than than any type of, uh, you know, daily stuff that we think of as so important, but in fact leaves no record at all.
4: On the face of it, this is kind of a discouraging argument here, because, you know, I think of my own talents, and, you know, maybe they're a little above average in some field, maybe a little below average in another field, but they're all in the middle of the distribution. They're not at the tail of the distribution. So, looking at the big picture here, yeah, I don't count for much.
0: Yeah, well, you could look at it that way. I mean, most of us have at least one thing we're fairly talented in. It just isn't always something that registers for a lot of other people, and it really, the, one of the hardest things in everyone's life is to find where you're really gifted and make your biggest impact. And some people do that, and some people have an extraordinary impact. You know, so uh, I don't, you know, I don't worry too much about. the fact, I'm not great at certain things, and focus on what I'm good at.
4: One might look at evolution as a series of small little mutations, and most of them, you know, don't do too much. But every now and again, you might get a mutation that's at the tail of the distribution in terms of its effect. And that the the fact that we have, you know, all these life forms on Earth today could be the result of all these tail of the distribution mutations rather than the, the daily grind of mutations.
0: Right. That's very much, in fact, what has become the prevailing theme in evolutionary theory over the last 20 years or so is what's called Evolutionary Development, or Evo-Devo, is the shorthand that people in the field use. And the idea is that what we learned is that so much of what happens in evolution is not controlled by the small changes in genes, but controlled by just a few genes that have a powerful effect as a switch or a regulator. Uh, They're now known as homeotic genes or homeobox genes. They are ones that switch on entire portions of the body plan. And so, especially, for example, in an insect, you can switch on... Uh, A limb and turn it into an antenna or turn it into a mouth part with a very, very small change in one key gene, you get a gigantic effect. And people are realizing that uh, they can make, you know, quite dramatic changes in body plan just by doing very small switches in these controlling or regulatory genes.
4: How do we regard the tail of the distribution events if we can... Kind of see them coming. I'm thinking of something like Hurricane Katrina. Yes, right. that you know, it was a rare, rare hurricane in terms of its force and where it landed and all that. But on the other hand, we see hurricanes many times every year. Is that still a tale of the distribution event, or is that you know? Yeah, looking Katrina.
0: At it th- Katrina was well. It's actually not even that big, and it only ended up being a magnitude three and on a scale of 5 stafford Saffir-Simpson scale. But what was different about Katrina, of course, was that it. Picked up energy as it slammed into the Gulf Coast after it had already gone over Florida. And what really made it the most damaging natural disaster in recent U.S. history was that the dikes in New Orleans failed and flooded the lower Ninth Ward and many other parts of town. And that made far more damage than the actual hurricane itself. And that was due to human failure and human error in terms of planning and and maintenance and that kind of stuff.
4: I can imagine that if I'm charged with uh, guarding the public safety somehow, (laughs) you know, I can say, okay, there are going to be some storms, maybe one-in-a-hundred-year storms. They're pretty pretty far out on the distribution there, and I can maybe take some precautions against those, but then there are the one in a thousand year events and so forth. How far out on the distribution do you have to go? I mean, is this just a cost-benefit analysis? Yeah, that's
0: exactly right. Yes. And engineers who work on this kind of stuff, that's exactly what they do. They have to analyze the effects of what, say, an earthquake of that size or a storm of this size will do, and then they plan to Build to uh, that particular magnitude, they decide is the most likely, but they don't. They don't go to the point where they overbuild because it's usually considered ineffective as far as you know. So much more per versus the likelihood it will appear, and there's also another factor too. I mean, rare events are still predictable. I mean, Katrina was picked up on satellite long before it made landfall, and all hurricanes are now routinely. Uh, in that respect, of course, they are less dangerous than they used to be. We have much less loss of life now on hurricanes. It's usually people who refuse to heed the warnings. But the other extreme, of course, is earthquakes, which are still not predictable. Okay? In 30, 40 years now, very hard trying by the scientific community. Nothing has really come through to be a universal, successful predictor of earthquakes. And there, you just have to base it on past history. And so engineers build to the certain seismic uh, you know, expectations. But again, there's no predictability, and that's what makes earthquakes in some ways more damaging because nobody can get out of the way.
4: There seems to be a subset of tale of the distribution events, which are called black swan events. What's the relationship between black swan events to tale of the distribution events, or are they just different names for the same thing?
0: Yeah, I think it's a renaming of something, but it has its own uh, specific thing. It was actually coined by a guy the of Nassim Taleb in a book, in 2001, and then he actually wrote a book called The Black Swan in 2007. And as Taleb originally defined it, it has very specific properties. It's a little more than just a tail of distribution. It's about not just the fact that it's a rare event, but it's an unpredictable event, which some tail of distribution events are predictable. And then the other thing is that it has a disproportionately large effect, which, again, some tail of the distribution events we talked about are disproportionately big in their effects, some are not. And so that is, I think, a bit of a distinction.
4: Well, maybe you can give me an example of a black swan event.
0: Positive black swan events that are disproportional things that could never have been foreseen, of course. The invention of the Internet and the personal computer, which have revolutionized our lives, uh, you know, and something which, you know, came out in the 80s and 90s pretty much with nobody ever predicting they would make life, you know, so you had to contain your whole life in one cell phone in your pocket. Bad events, for example, World War I, of course, with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, everything falls apart in very rapid order, or the uh, 9-11 attacks, uh, anything large-scale and unpredictable that had big negative effects.
4: What about the Ebola outbreak? Because some people have characterized that as a black swan event.
0: Uh, I wouldn't call it that because Ebola, first of all, was well understood and was known to be running rampant through much of Western Africa for months, uh, well into last year, actually. So in that respect, it was widespread. It was not as rare as people thought it would be. Well, it may, what makes it seem just like it's more of a catastrophe is that we are so careless about our, our own uh, safety that we let it slip into this country. And then, of course, we have this media just amplifying the scare way above its true effects. Whereas, we you know, we lose hundreds of people every day thanks to things like car accidents and heart disease. So, as usual, it's the rare event that's scarier. But if you have much more to fear from your your lunch or your car than anything else.
4: <laughs> Particularly my lunch. Well, finally, Don, I have to say, you know, there are a lot of things I can think of that are clearly tail of the distribution or black swan events, things that could get me, you know, like uh, getting hit by a train when I'm bicycling home tonight or that kind of thing. I could probably think of a thousand of them. But if there's a one in a thousand chance that one of them is going to get me, well, it sounds like I'm doomed. <laughs>
0: Well, we don't live forever. That's pretty much, I guess, one thing we do know for true. You can't let it paralyze you.
4: Donald Prothero, thanks so very much
0: for being with us today. Thanks so much for inviting me. I appreciate it.
4: Donald Prothero
1: is a paleontologist, geologist, and author of many books, among them Catastrophes, Earthquakes, Tsunamis, Tornadoes, and Other Earth-Shattering Disasters.
4: Well, one disaster that would shatter if not the Earth, the whole of the western United States, is the eruption of the supervolcano at Yellowstone National Park. You may not have known that this park, which is, of course, famous for its geysers, is a massive volcano. And if it blows, well, that's a tale of the distribution event if there ever was one. We discuss it next on Big Picture Science.
1: This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
4: We are talking about the occurrence of rare events, and you could say that where this guy works is ground zero
6: for such. I'm Jake Lowenstern. I'm the scientist in charge of the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory, and I work for the U.S. Geological Survey.
1: Yellowstone National Park is not just on a volcano. It is a volcano. It's a supervolcano, and it's capable of producing the most massive sort of volcanic eruption. The last major blowup was 640,000 years ago, and it left behind a caldera, a big cauldron.
6: Yellowstone is a caldera system, and that uh, caldera is a giant cave-in that occurs when a magma chamber, a magma reservoir, a place where molten rock resides beneath the ground, when that erupts, there's nothing to hold the ground up anymore, and so the ground caves in, and the, the caldera at Yellowstone is on the order of 50 miles across.
4: You can actually see the caldera from the right vantage point in the park, and Yellowstone is not done throwing fits. Geologists say there will be another super explosion, and it's not if, it's just when. Yes, the vacation destination for families who want to gaze at Old Faithful is not only a hot spot of activity, but a literal hotbed of pent-up subterranean volcanic firepower. Be sure to bring the kids. The super volcano story has gotten a lot of press. You may have read about
1: or seen a film on the upcoming eruption.
4: And if you haven't, Here's how one might unfold it. It might begin with music and a a shot of the park, like this Discovery Channel show does. A narrator sums up the situation.
7: Yellowstone is
4: an active supervolcano capable of this. Okay, and now they brought in the CGI guys and have superposed on this supervolcano, balls of fire exploding from the park floor now a bilious black cloud and and also some lightning. Scary
7: stuff. Thousands of times more powerful than Mount St. Helens. An eruption on this scale would bury western
6: North America.
1: Now, at this point, these shows might bring in a scientist to comment. Geologist Jake Lowenstern has often appeared on such shows.
6: The amount of material is enough to bury the state of Texas five feet deep. A quote like that sounds pretty ominous, except...
4: This is only part of what he said. His commentary has been cherry-picked. See, Dr. Lowenstern actually said quite a bit more to us, as he has to other reporters. He says he's often quoted out of context when asked to describe a Yellowstone supervolcano eruption.
6: Well, it's probably just easier for me to describe what happened 640,000 years ago. And about a 1,000 cubic kilometers of magma was erupted at that time. The amount of material is enough to bury the state of Texas five feet deep.
1: So that clip about Texas being buried five feet deep, that was taken from a longer statement, and he wasn't really making a doomsday prediction for the Lone Star State. He was giving a sense of just how much ash the volcano produced during the last big eruption. It's all the same, right? The last big eruption and the next big eruption— well, no, because if Jake Lowenstern is allowed to continue, he'll tell you that the odds that a super explosion will happen in this century are between 1 in a thousand and one in 10,000.
4: Those odds don't make it into many Yellowstone supervolcano films.
3: A killer volcano, the most destructive of its kind. When it goes, hundreds of thousands will die. And we put the actual odds of it happening in this century at about 0.1%, maybe 001 A
1: massive explosion at Yellowstone, if put in the context of geologic time, as Donald Prothero does, it could be considered frequent. But over our lifetime, and even including that of our great-great-grandchildren, it would be a tale of the distribution event, extremely unlikely. But wait a minute, are we really out of danger? Hasn't the volcano erupted with smaller eruptions since that last super explosion?
6: Well, first of all, the last eruption to occur there was 70,000 years ago, so it's not as if they're happening every day. And second, we have a pretty sophisticated monitoring system. We have a network of seismometers, seismic stations. We have a network of GPS receivers, so you can see how the ground's moving. We have tilt meters and strain meters. Some of them are beneath the ground, and most of them are just attached at the surface.
1: The volcano at Yellowstone has been referred to as a super volcano. What puts the super into the super volcano?
6: Well, if you've had a super eruption, then you get dubbed a super volcano. A super eruption is one uh, where you're the the volcano explosivity index of eight, meaning that you've vented or erupted about a 1,000 cubic kilometers of debris. And it's a huge amount of material. If you put it all in one place, you could spread it out over the state of Texas about five feet deep. In this case, a third of the material ends up in the caldera that's formed, the hole that's actually forming 50 miles across in Yellowstone. About a third of the material hugs the ground in giant hot clouds that move down the river valleys and bury some of the local mountains. And so that puts a lot of material out close to Yellowstone and and buries areas nearby Yellowstone. And about a third of the material goes much further. That's what goes up into the stratosphere. It forms what we call an umbrella cloud. It moves laterally in the sky. And then bits of ash fall down even very far away from Yellowstone. And one thing these giant eruptions can do is change the climate somewhat for a period of a few years. They cool the atmosphere down because the sulfur, the sulfate aerosols in the atmosphere reflect some of the sunlight. So that causes cooler weather. And in 1815, there was the year without a summer caused by the Tambora eruption in Indonesia, and that caused climate changes even in New England and in Europe.
1: Okay, so the big question is, will there be another supervolcano eruption in Yellowstone?
6: That's always possible, but we don't think it's necessarily likely. Uh, Yellowstone has now had three very large eruptions in its past, and most of these systems, they're born, they live a while, and then they die out. And in the case of Yellowstone, there may be another volcano that picks up a couple of million years from now, further to the northeast. Having said that, somewhere on Earth, at some point in the future, maybe not at Yellowstone, there will be another Titanic eruption similar to those that have happened at Yellowstone's past.
1: There are a lot of TV shows that talk about this supervolcanic eruption. Is this all hyperbole? Is this hype?
6: Well, it's, it's true in that it has happened, and it's a big deal when it happens. It's hype in that there's no real reason to believe that it's going to happen anytime soon.
1: Jake Lowenstern, thank you so much for speaking with
4: us.
6: It was my pleasure. Thanks, Molly. Jake Lowenstern is a USGS
4: geologist and the scientist in charge at the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory. And it sounds like actually the big blowout there, that's way out on the the tail of the distribution. So I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to go visit.
1: Right, so don't cancel any trips to Yellowstone.
4: I'm not planning to. Well, okay. But so much of the attention on Yellowstone is on the drama of this supervolcano, And that means that reports on the fascinating science of the geology here is often eclipsed. So let's pause for a moment about the explosives that might one day spew from this park and consider the, relatively speaking, gentler fountains.
1: Yellowstone is bubbling with geysers. Old Faithful is just the most famous. Hot water not only shoots from the park grounds, but trickles down steeped, colorful terraces of limestone. Walking around the park truly gives one the feeling of having landed on an alien planet. We gave our reporter Marissa Fessenden the grueling assignment of touring this strange geothermal world.
2: It's hot here in Yellowstone National Park. Not the air around me, it's nine on a fall morning, but under the ground. Yellowstone has been shaped by geologic forces beneath my feet and it's still geologically active. And I can tell because right ahead of me, I'm looking at the narrow gauge terrace. It looks like a cake with icing on top and there are hot pools of water that are steaming in the sun. It's about 162 degrees Fahrenheit in that water, and looking at it is incredible. Let's head up this trail and see what we can find. Yellowstone is full of geysers and other geothermal features. They're scattered in basins throughout the park. Some geysers spew steaming water tens of feet into the air, but others are just little bubbling fonts. Standing next to me with a ranger's hat to shield from the sun is Hank Hessler, the park geologist here at Yellowstone.
8: We're at Mammoth Hot Springs in Yellowstone National Park, and it's unusual and that it's all basically formed out of calcium carbonate or limestone. So what we're seeing in front of us are many of the same formations that you get in caves, not the stalactites or stalagmites, but you're getting terraces sets, beautiful colors caused by microbes and it's very much like the interior of carlsbad caverns or other big limestone caverns but it's displayed on the surface of the ground here
2: so now we're looking at something a little different um, the it's less steep but there are a lot more colors going on there's some green over there and browns and kind of gold and copper colors. What do you see with your geologist eyes?
8: This is an area called Grassy Spring, and if you look at it, you see that it's white, it's yellow, it has long microbial filaments up to a yard long coming out. And that water is bubbling, and the bubbling is not due to it being at boiling temperature. What's causing all the boiling then? We have a lot of carbon dioxide gas coming out forming the bubbles and that is a key aspect for how we get all this cave interior if you want to think of it that way forming on the surface as the carbon dioxide gas comes out just like in a bottle of soda when you take the top off and it's depressurized carbon dioxide comes out the pH changes the level of acidity and that causes this calcium carbonate to deposit into these very beautiful, intricate forms.
2: If we could see into the earth below us, what would all that geothermal activity look like, all this activity that's producing the geysers and hot springs?
8: That's a very good question, and there's a lot of hypotheses right now. So we have a magma chamber or magma reservoir that exists under Yellowstone. Its shallowest depth is about three miles, and then there's another place that's about nine miles, but generally it's about 15 or 20 miles. And what does this molten rock or magma reservoir contain? It contains about 90% crystals and 10% molten material. So seismically they can see that. So that's the ultimate heat source for all the geothermal features you see in the park the Yellowstone Volcano, that magma chamber, the shallow depth, the very hot temperatures. Uh, The temperature of this magma is around 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit. So very high temperatures at shallow depth in the earth. And then we also get a lot of water here. There's a lot of precipitation. So we have an unusual heat source, we have a lot of water, and then associated with this geologic terrain we're in, we get hundreds to thousands of earthquakes per year. The ground also deforms. It bends over tens of square miles. All this tends to break up the volcanic rock into a whole bunch of fractures and faults, and that provides the plumbing system. So put those together in your mind, and you start to get a visualization For how this system works. Cold water comes down through these cracks, it gets heated up, it comes back up to the surface, and it's expressed as the geysers, the hot springs, the steam vents, and the mud pots.
2: So, these geysers around us, is that the volcano letting off steam and pressure, or is that just an indication of the cooking that's happening beneath us?
8: The question of how do the geysers affect the volcano and how does the volcano affect the geysers is an interesting one. Because yes, it is releasing energy from that molten rock. We roughly figure that the power output of Yellowstone is in the five to 10 gigawatts. And that is taking heat away from the volcano. But also, the volcano is the heart of the thermal system. And now, again, we don't know if there will ever be another super eruption. And how do you monitor? We've got close to 30 seismometers in the Yellowstone network, some of them outside of the park. Also, there's about uh, 12 very precise GPS stations in the park. And these aren't what's in your car or you carry around in your hand. These are such that they're sensing motion to within just a few millimeters. So a few fractions like a 16th or 32nd of an inch. And they can tell how much the ground is moving up in an area, north, south, east, or west. So the ground deformation is an important pattern, too.
2: So your extensive arrays of sensors and seismometers and everything keeps an eye on this volcano. Have you had any false alarms?
8: Depending on what you call a false alarm, uh, go to the Internet and you'll see that there's a a lot of very honest predictions, and some of them aren't so honest, where people are truly concerned about Yellowstone erupting because they've looked at the seismic signal, or they've heard from a friend that the roads are melting in the park, and all these concerns are usually based in a little bit of fact. Have we gone into what's called an incident command system because of earthquakes? Yes. 2009. Uh, 2010, we went into incident command systems to be able potentially to evacuate some areas if earthquake intensity increased. We take the geologic hazards of Yellowstone National Park very seriously. We have never gone to a volcano alert or an earthquake alert. United States Geological Survey hasn't done that. But we've got a good monitoring network and if warranted, that will occur.
2: Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today.
4: Thank you. Hank Hessler is a geologist at Yellowstone National Park, thanks to reporter Marissa Fessenden.
1: Have you been to Yellowstone?
4: I have, actually. It's been a while, but I have, and it's it's very dramatic.
1: And Hank touched on it, but there are all these chemicals um, that are bubbling up and trickling down the terraces, and in those chemicals or in that liquid are extremophiles, bacteria and viruses that can live in these extreme temperatures and acidities.
4: Well, that's right. And some of these extremophiles, I mean, they're living at temperatures that would be totally intolerable for us. What's kind of interesting is that that may be where life started in in this kind of an environment.
1: It also suggests that life would be pretty hardy if you went looking for it on another planet.
4: If it uh, was sort of a Yellowstone planet. And there are such worlds.
1: Well, Yellowstone may be one of the most singularly beautiful parks, and its supervolcano an ominous but rare threat. But why does the possibility of an eruption still make us kind of nervous? Or any low-risk event, for that matter? Well, turns out we're not great at assessing risk, says a professional risk analyst next.
4: It's Tale of the Distribution on Big Picture Science. This guy's job is kind of chancy.
7: I am Andrew Maynard, and I am an expert in risk.
4: You might figure that to mean that he frequently bungee jumps off bridges or wrestles tigers or tightrope walks over Manhattan. Well, we don't know what Andrew Maynard does in his free time, but his professional attentions are devoted to risk. As director of the Risk Science Center at the University of Michigan...
1: We've been talking in this episode of Big Picture Science about the tale of distribution and black swan events. And some, like the appearance of a once-in-a-hundred-years mathematical prodigy, don't involve threat.
4: Well, except to their sibling's self-esteem. But other
1: unlikely events do. So how do we put those low-risk probabilities in perspective and weigh them against the more common risks? Because we all have irrational fears that keep us awake like owls in the night
7: nobody is really rational when it comes to these low probability events. Our brains really just aren't wired to make sense of numbers, especially really big numbers like a one in a thousand, one in 10,000, one in a million chance of something happening. And especially when it's something which may not happen in our lifetime, but there's just that minute chance that it might. We have ways of thinking about this, and certainly there are scientists, academics that do this, but most people really just can't work out how to deal with the numbers.
4: Well, if you speak of very low probability events, for example, the risk of a supervolcano belching out of Yellowstone Park has been estimated to be something like one in a thousand or maybe one in ten thousand in the entire century. So, you know, that's a pretty remote uh, likelihood that it's going to affect you. But on the other hand, if it did, it would be big news. And in any case, the probability is not zero. So do they even make it to your radar, for example?
7: Oh, sure. And it's not just events like that. Even events such as the possibility of getting cancer from something, quite often these are low-probability events, but they're pretty important to the people that get cancer. So yeah, we we think about these things. And we think about ways of um, helping people think about risks like these and putting them into context.
4: You work in the risk science center that that sounds like it's a really interesting place to to work maybe all the walls are padded or something to minimize lots
7: of lots of risk
4: yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, good. So what kind of risks is your center looking at? I mean, do super volcanoes or asteroids ever ever come up in the discussions there?
7: They they don't, or very rarely. We, we deal with the sorts of things that are more commonly likely to affect people's health, um, all the way from exposure to stuff like noise to chemicals. But we also do an awful lot of stuff about helping people think about risks so that they can manage them, they can do something about them. Things such as if you've got a brand new technology and trying to work out what the bad things are that can happen with that, something like nanotechnology, for instance. Because if we can work out what the risks are, we can also work out how to make the technology safer.
4: Well, that brings to mind... Uh, The claims that were made, you know, a couple of years ago, I haven't heard many recently, that using a cell phone was going to, you know, cook your brain. At least there was some probability that it might cook your brain. Right. And that strikes me as obviously fairly low risk because most people's brains are not cooked even though most people use cell phones. So is that an example of kind of low risk probability events that you look at?
7: Actually, it's an example of something where there's a a plausible risk, but the more we look at it, the the harder we find it to to actually find a real risk there. So I'm not even sure I would consider it low probability. The thing with using a cell phone, it seems to make sense. You're sort of emitting these radio waves close to your brain. Sure, something's likely to be fried. Uh, So people started doing the research, but the more research they did, the less they could actually find in terms of evidence for anything bad happening. And the same applies to, for example, the fact that I live near some high voltage uh, power lines. That's right. Uh, The thing about those risks are you can measure them. If you do enough research, you can put a number on the chances of there being a problem with your health. Very different from a, a one-off event such as an eruption or an asteroid hit where it's very very hard, virtually impossible to predict.
4: Are these the sorts of things that are called black swan events?
7: Yeah, that's one term for them. They're the sort of things which are incredibly low probability, really hard to get a handle on, yet if they happen it's pretty significant.
4: Maybe you could give me an example of, of some black swan events.
7: Oh, goodness me. Um, Well, you know, I'm actually going to bring you straight back to some of the earlier examples of a a volcanic eruption or an asteroid hit. Yellowstone is a perfect example if it erupts of a Black Swan event, because we've only got about three data points on when that's likely to happen. That's nowhere near enough to give you a good prediction of whether you're going to have a mega eruption or not.
4: Okay, so this isn't a question of being out on the tail of the distribution. It's just,
7: I don't know, the luck of the draw because we just don't know any better. It is at the moment because we just have no data. There's no way we can easily predict things. And that's the difference between that and a a curve. With a curve, we're saying we can predict things. We can predict how probable or how improbable something is. With a black swan, we don't even have the curve. Okay,
4: the insurance companies presumably do have curves for most sorts of risks. I, I take it. I mean, that's how they decide how they're going to make some money.
7: Sure, sure. So they, they do their best to create curves. And of course, the less of a curve you have, the less data you have, the more of the risk there is in making an investment. And really, sort of, insurance is something of an investment. So they need to decide what they're going to set the insurance premiums at to represent that uncertainty.
4: Let's get back to our reaction to risk. I had a roommate in college. He was terrified of swimming in the ocean because he was afraid of sharks. Now, the chances that he'd get chewed on by a shark were awfully small, but it was the randomness of it, the unpredictability from his point of view, and it caused a highly emotional reaction. Are we wired to worry about the wrong things?
7: We're certainly wired to worry about things that don't make sense From the data's point of view. And quite often, psychologists will refer to dread when it comes to this. You take sharks. uh, To many people, there's a certain feel of dread, you know, that emotional response at the thought of being attacked by a shark. And that tends to dominate all of their thinking when it comes to making decisions.
4: Yet it's easy to point to many dangers, unlike sharks that because of their familiarity, we view as a routine and therefore discount. I'm thinking here of, you know, getting your kid vaccinated or just wearing your seatbelt.
7: Sure. So I, actually, with the, the kid vaccinations, at least we do have data on that. And, and we know that the, the chances of, of harm coming to your, your kid from vaccinations are incredibly low. They're not zero, but they're very low. Uh, but yes, you take something like driving. The things that we're familiar with, we tend to discount the risks or certainly underplay the risks.
4: So as a matter of public policy, what do you recommend? How can we get people to recognize that they're sitting around worried about, I don't know, Ebola, whereas they don't use their seat belt? And from a statistical point of view, one is a you know, thousands, I'm sure, millions of times more dangerous than the other, and they ignore it. How do you deal with that?
7: So in a number of ways, and part of this is is respect for people and understanding that that nobody is perfect when it comes to making sense of the numbers. Even myself, to be honest, I work with these numbers, and I find it hard to make sense of a number when somebody says the risk of something happening is one in a thousand, one in a ten thousand, whatever. So I think we need to respect that. We need to understand how people think, why they think that way, why they take shortcuts, why we take shortcuts, because we're all in the same boat. As soon as we've got that, we can begin to work out how to work with people, communicate with people, to help them make sense of risks more effectively.
4: Why do you think so many people are so emotional about Ebola? I mean, you know, the number of people that have died from Ebola is is fewer than the number of people that die on the highways every month here in this country. And yet, people are terribly afraid of this. Is it just because it's a horrible disease or because it has the potential to become a, a pandemic? What's
7: the deal there? So it, it certainly is a horrible disease, and that definitely evokes An emotional response, especially when you see what's happened in in Africa. I'm not convinced yet that a lot of people are afraid of Ebola. I think you have a very emotional response, a very empathetic response. You know what it's like. If you watch TV, you watch uh, images of of a child being harmed or drowned or something like that. It really wrenches your gut. It gets you it, it leads to a response which is a little bit like fear, but it isn't really fear because you know it won't happen to you, but you see it happening to somebody else and you empathize with them. I think we're seeing a lot of that with Ebola, but at the same time, as the, the, the cases of things happening mount up in the United States, people are beginning to ask questions, asking why is this happening? Could it possibly happen to me? Even though people are assuring me it won't, could it possibly? And I think that that's eliciting not necessarily fear, but concern. Well, finally, Andrew, low probability doesn't mean it won't
4: happen. So do you think that we're going to become more careful about the routine dangers of daily life if sometime in the near future our lifetimes are extended to a few centuries?
7: I think we'll have to be. The longer we live, the more aware we're going to be of the things that are going to take that longevity away from us. And I think that that's going to change the way people think, certainly about everyday things which cumulatively affect their risk. It's inevitable.
4: All right. I'm going to invest in uh, seatbelt companies. Andrew Maynard, thank you so very much for being with us today. Thanks very much.
1: Andrew Maynard is director of the Risk Science Center at the University of
4: Michigan. Well, clearly, we're not very good at assessing the true risks of things that are way out on the distribution. We we judge them on their emotional content. But on the other hand, you know, those things way, way out there, we've heard how important they can be, and it reminds me of what Churchill said, never have so many owed so much to so few. Now he was talking about the Royal Air Force, but he might have been talking about Isaac Newton or Michael Faraday in terms of people, or he might have been talking about, you know, the kinds of things that we heard about that go on in the desert, reshape the whole place, but they only occur once every couple of hundred years.
1: Or on timescales even longer than that. The other point that Donald Prothero made is that if you think on geologic timescales, as he does, what may seem like a rare event is actually happening quite frequently because you're thinking over millennia. And that seems to be the way that we measure the frequency of an event like the supervolcanic eruption at Yellowstone. It sounds very scary. If it happened, it would change everything in the northern hemisphere and the climate around the world when might it happen? Well, it might be another century or more. So we can sit back and relax. We could try to sit back and relax and not worry too much about that
4: one. Kind of, refu- kind of reminds me of supernovae, exploding stars in the galaxy. You know, one goes off every century or so, so we haven't seen many. But if you could have a time-lapse movie of the galaxy since the Big Bang, they'd be going off like flashbulbs all the time. They're important. They're actually frequent, just not on human timescales. And for a final note, we return to Don Balmer turns out that the very term black swan, as a useful metaphor to describe a rare event, may itself be at risk, at least if you plan on talking to friends in the U.K. The birds there are anything but extraordinary, except for the nature of the threat they pose to white or mute swans and to other birds.
5: Black swans are, have been increasing quite a lot in recent years, and our latest estimate is that there's probably three to 400 birds in the wild here. So they're providing competition with the mute swan, but also other water birds on lakes. They're also adding more trampling, more pooing in our water, which is obviously not good for the water quality.
1: Well, I would assume that you might get some of that from any bird population. Why are they in competition with the mute swan? Are they separate species? Can they not interbreed?
5: Black swans are just generally more aggressive generally swans pair for life so it could be a pair of mute swans and the black swans could come in and actually oust that pair make them move on to another place by being aggressive they're sort of competing for for good habitat for nesting
1: Can they breed together? They They do
5: breed together and uh, produce young and sometimes people call those young blutes which is a mixture of black and mute
1: They're called blutes? Blutes (laughs) And and what colour are the blutes?
5: Well they're sort of a greyish colour Personally I've never seen a, a blute
1: Don, were you aware that in the U.S. at least, the term black swan is used as a metaphor to describe an event that is exceedingly rare?
5: No, I, that was, um, that's new to me. Um, here, black swan, you know, it's, it's a bird, and I think that's the only meaning we have in our dictionary.
1: So it would not connote something that was exceedingly rare in your mind?
5: Absolutely not.
1: Finally, Don, maybe we'll have to introduce the term blute as an event or occurrence that is very rare, as you have never seen a blute.
5: I've never seen a blute. <laughs> Blute could be a new metaphor for describing something that is exceedingly rare.
1: <laughs> Don Balmer, thank you so much for speaking with us.
5: Thank
4: you. Don Balmer is an ornithologist at the British Trust for Ornithology.
1: Thanks to a production team whose talent is as exceptional as a blute, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Marissa Fessenden.
4: Also thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky, David, and Sammy David, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced here at the SETI Institute, where we investigate the nature and prevalence of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
1: Your ears have been attuned to Tale of the Distribution. And if you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, you can peruse the distribution of episodes at our archive on our website, bigpicturescience.org.
4: And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because that's where you first heard Swanee River, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like this show. Oh, and do you have a comment or a criticism, a suggestion, even a compliment? Well, email it all to bigpicturescience at SETI.org.
3: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping.